welcome to the first Noella Buys Press podcast. Um, I'd like to welcome you, Sam Thompson. Thank you so much for agreeing to come and chat to us today. Uh, we're talking about the anthology, which we're publishing in June, called Still Worlds Turning. And would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, so my name's Sam Thompson. Uh, I'm a fiction writer. I've written uh, two novels. Uh, one is Communion Town, which came out a few years ago now in 2012. And the second was called Jot, which uh, came out last year, 2018. And the story that you've given us for anthology is called Seafront Gothic. Yeah. It's a beautiful, dark, gothic, <laughs> mysterious um, story. Um, is this a departure for you from the work that you've been doing before? or? I suppose it, it is a departure in a way from what I was spending my time on with the novel that that I wrote most recently because this is this is it's a more this is a more like you say it's a more uncanny kind of um weird story uh, whereas the novel wasn't exactly that um but it doesn't feel like a departure in a way it feels a bit it feels more like this was just some of the stuff that was bubbling under the surface you know, while I was writing a long thing that this couldn't fit into, you know, I, I, that's what I, I find when you've been working on some on one thing for a long time. Yeah. There, there's all this other um, stuff, you know, ideas for other things that you wish you could write, but you don't have time to pile up. And then when you finally sign off something big, then you then you have time to to do those other things. So so that's that's sort of what happened, actually, that um, after I finished Jot, I found I, I wrote a, a whole bunch of short stories of quite a lot of different kinds, actually. Um, and, I'm, and I think probably that's why, you know, just that you, you end up with that stuff that's just waiting to come out. And also, actually, in the process of writing a novel, when you, I, I find it's very good when you run out of steam and you feel really, uh, you know, like you've run into the sand with a novel, you can, you can go off and write a short story, and that's really refreshing. So you did that while you were writing the novel? You would I kind did. of take a almost like a little kind of sidetrack and go and write on something that was completely separate from the things or yeah like yeah thing. I think I mean I think so the novel was you know it was, it was a kind of it was a fairly I mean it, it was set in in the 1930s in London it was kind of fairly I wouldn't exactly say realist but kind of you know it wasn't that weird whereas uh, this is something slightly more oddball like this um yeah just it was a, it's a nice chance I, I I did write this story while I was in the middle of writing that novel, actually, and, really? it, and it, yeah, I remember it was, and it, I, I do actually remember it had that kind of effect. I was, I wrote quite a lot of it, um, the first draft of it, when I was on a trip to London for um, for a few days, and it kind of, I, I came back quite kind of refreshed actually, um, in terms of getting back to the other thing. And how um, did the story kind of come to you? Was it a character, or did it come complete, or that? I think that's a that's such an interesting. I think that's actually such an interesting question, and even more with short stories than with other things I've I've tried to write. That yeah, you know, where it comes from, I think is really mysterious with short fiction, and I think it can come from. I might so my feeling is that it can come from all kinds of different places, um, you know, and you know whether it's say you know an idea for um, a relationship between characters or just a, a kind of a mood you want to get into um, or even just a kind of sentence that seems to be leading somewhere so you add another sentence onto it and then you can add a third one and you can just kind of keep going and I I sort of feel as though say if you're writing a whole a book a novel you sort of 
in the end you kind of have to have some kind of idea of what you think you've done or what you're trying to do whereas with a short story I, I think you can maybe get right through to the end of it without ever knowing quite what you're doing um, and I think that that's one of the things I really like about them they can just they can keep their kind of mystery um, and never quite give it away uh, in this in this one actually it, I think partly it was the title actually just because obviously it's a type the, the idea of the seafront gothic in this story is a hotel but it's also obviously um, the name of a genre I suppose and I, I, I guess it was partly just that idea of saying let's have a you know it's it's a it's a place which is also a, a kind of mood or a genre and how does that work and that and and I suppose also it, I just had a kind of idea about a, a relationship between siblings um, a sort of slightly creepy relationship between between some siblings and I didn't necessarily have any more than that I think going into the story but I just kind of wanted had an idea of, of that kind of place which was also a feeling and and that was what the story was that was the, the kind of aim in sitting down to write it just to get into that and see what was there and it's so interesting in the story as well the way um you, you kind of don't know whose perspective to trust right in yeah. a sense um is that something that you were interested in exploring did that just kind of come out as the character yeah, sort of well, became <laughs> <laughs> that's i think that's a really good question because again actually i, I didn't exactly before I started writing this kind of bunch of short stories that this is one of I didn't exactly know I was interested in that but when I look back at the handful of stories um, it turns out that I am because a lot of that uh, all, uh, several stories I wrote around that time were about this kind of thing where you have a, a, a narrator who I suppose I, and I didn't even realize it while I was writing it actually but when you read over it you see okay I thought the narrator here was the sane one and the other guy was the was the one who was the problem and then you read over it and you think actually maybe that's not really what's happening and um and again it's so that that's it's a thing that i think a short short story can can do for you so well you know it, it can surprise you um and t it turns out that what you thought you were doing ha has a, a whole other sort of side to it and, it and it may just flip over at the end that's so interesting in a way then that the um the whole form is sort of reflected in the characters in a sense and that's an sort of um uncertainty about who is you know and a mistaken identity right. in the story and sure. things as well that yeah that's really interesting one, one mm -hmm. of the really interesting things from the editorial side of things mm -hmm. um for this whole anthology was we had because we opened submissions for the stories and got about a thousand stories and we had right, really wow. overwhelming response it was really fa fascinating and we hadn't set a theme or anything like that but um we we decided to see if the stories that we liked the most would sort of present a theme to us yeah. um and very quickly it was clear that the stories which we were drawn to all shared um very very different ways of expressing anxieties and mm. sort of um loss of security um here as you were saying there's something really interesting happening between sibling relationships and lots of the other uh, stories that, um, that will be in the, the anthology. It's um, parent figures or grandparents. Right. And that has uh, all, but, so all exploring those loss of securities in very different ways. And I just find it really fascinating that these kind of small worlds are being used to explore some larger sense of yeah. where we are today in terms of anxiety, yeah. sort of uh, apprehension about where that is really interesting, isn't yeah. it? And I guess editing a short story anthology is a good way to find that out. Yeah. <laughs> There's something yeah. going on in the collective unconscious. Yeah, I mean, but, yeah. it's been amazing. Yeah. Um, shall we 
Now, would you like to read the story for yeah, us, please? Yeah, uh, I'd love to. Thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Okay. Seafront Gothic. Off-season, and not a soul on the promenade. Shuttered ice cream parlours, chains on turnstiles, arcade machines, frilling their lights for no one. Driving all day makes things less than real. The hotel was out on its own, a shabby hulk with unlit windows, and as I tried the door, I was already telling myself I had wasted a journey. The young man, standing at the check-in desk, was watching me, glassy-eyed and rigid, as if I had dropped a coin in a slot to have my fortune told. He looked capable of standing like that forever, but at length a smile stiffened his face. Hiya, Tobes, he said. Welcome to the seafront gothic. I woke to the screaming of gulls and a splattered skylight. Niall had put me at the top of the hotel in a room barely wide enough for the single bed. I threw off a sheet speckled with black mould, then got dressed and found my way down to the dining room. The tables were set, but no one was around. I lifted a fork. It was coated with dust. There he is, Niall said behind me. Have a seat, wherever you can find one. He disappeared through a swing door before I could answer. He'd always had a knack for getting me tongue-tied. I had tracked him down through mutual acquaintances, not that there were many of those. None of his friends had seen him, but I heard from someone that he had left London and from someone else that he'd gone practically off the grid. Finally, one of his old girlfriends had given me the name of this place. Niall returned with a tray and set out my breakfast. Enjoy, he said, and whisked away. White specks rotated on the surface of the liquid in the teacup. On the plate lay two strips of grey fat, two carbonised triangles and a clump of pale matter, jelly in the middle and burned around the edges. I found him in the lobby, behind the desk, pretending to scribble in a notebook. He looked up, blank-faced. Can I help you? Two elderly men were sitting in a pair of armchairs. The lenses of their spectacles matched the lobby's windows, opaque with smears, scratches, dust. One of the men lifted an enormous grey handkerchief to his mouth and convulsed in silence. Niall put down his pencil and walked away from me. What are you doing here? I followed him down the corridor and into the barroom, where as I entered I had the impression that two figures were leaving by two separate doors. Then I saw a mirror on the wall and understood that one of the figures had been the reflection of the other. Niall reappeared behind the bar and began to wipe it down with a cloth. I said, it's about Ali. She was the youngest of the three of us, and naturally we were protective. I was, at least. Niall pretended not to have any feelings of that kind, and it was true he had never been as close with her as I was, but I knew he cared in his way. I knew that when he understood the situation, he would put rivalry aside. I had been worried about her for a long time now. For years she had been drifting away. She seldom answered her phone, her replies to my emails were terse if they came at all, and once when I called to her flat unannounced, she looked almost frightened to see me. She stood in the entrance with the door half closed. I knew something was going on, and I was not surprised when, the next time I phoned, she admitted her boyfriend was making her life difficult. His name was Sol. It was the first I had heard of him. The situation was hard to explain, she said. With a sick feeling in my chest, 
I asked whether this man had hurt or threatened her, whether she was in danger, where she was right now. I told her to leave at once and come straight to my place, or that I'd fetch her if she preferred, but she laughed and told me not to worry. I'm fine, she said. It's not like that. We just can't be in touch for a while. All right. When you've always been someone's big brother, it doesn't feel right to leave her to fend for herself, but Ali had her own life. I told myself that if she needed help, she would let me know, but after several weeks of silence, I decided it could not go on. Her safety outweighed other considerations, so I went back to her flat. If this soul was there and he wanted to make trouble, so be it. I had a right to visit my sister. The door to her flat was answered by a woman I had never seen before. She told me she had been living here for three weeks and she didn't know where the previous tenant had gone. Perplexed, I tried Ali's phone, but it rang out. The second time it went straight to voicemail. I was seriously concerned. Ali might be hard to reach sometimes, but it wasn't like her to vanish. I sought out everyone she knew, however slightly, but none of them could tell me anything. I had been asking around her friends for almost a month when she phoned from a withheld number and told me we needed to meet. We both arrived early at the place she had named, the cafe of an art house cinema on the other side of the city. I knew what she was going to say. Things had gone bad with Sol, and she had moved to get away from him. She needed to be where he couldn't find her. Can you imagine it? Seeing the girl you've known since her infancy, sitting at an aluminium table, an adult, worn by her life, hurting in ways you can't help or understand. She had kept her overcoat on and put her bag on the floor. She wore her hair in a loose ponytail. There were fine creases at the corners of her eyes and mouth. I reached for her hand in a reflex of, of affection. I had never noticed them before, those creases, and they made me feel as sharply as ever that I did not yet know her completely. That there would always be more to discover. I felt as if we were children again, a boy of 13 years and a girl of eight. She drew her hand out of reach and told me she had come to a decision. She was moving away for good, and this time not just south of the river, but to another hemisphere. She wasn't going to tell me anything more about her plans. She had to feel sure that no one could trace her. I begged her to see sense, arguing that she couldn't let herself be terrorised. I got angry thinking about this faceless criminal who had invaded her life. He mustn't win, I told her. Men like that must not be allowed to win. I don't know what he's done, but you mustn't run away. We'll protect you, I said. We'll teach him a lesson. When I ran out of steam, I was glaring at her across the table, breathing hard, and I knew her mind was made up. I walked along the promenade, the wind going through my shirt. My patience with Niall was running out. I had told him everything, and he had acted as if it wasn't his concern. A woman watched me from the entrance of a shop. She wore a sheaf of necklaces, decorated with metal discs like tiny coins. Her shop window contained a few bits of hippie junk, dream catchers, incense burners, crystal balls, pewter goblins. I nodded a greeting as I passed, but she stared back as if she had never seen such a gesture before. Back at the hotel, I noticed that all four of my car's tyres were flat. Three boys, ten or eleven years old, were sitting on the concrete wall, watching me with big grins on their faces. A mongrel nosed at their feet, then danced up on its hind legs to try and grab something that one of the boys was holding out of its reach. The boy threw the object into the air, and the dog leaped and caught it. It was a stone. I heard the teeth clack. 
I climbed stairs and walked along corridors. At the top of the house, I found an open door. The room was the same size and shape as the one I had slept in last night. In front of a cathode-ray television set, a Sega Mega Drive nestled in its own wires. A big silver portable stereo with two built-in speakers stood at the foot of the bed and cassette tapes were stacked in crazy towers against the wall. The cassettes were home copied, like the ones we used to make, with the album titles and track listings written on the inlay cards in ballpoint. Looking closer, I saw they actually were the ones we had made. Many were in my own handwriting. I looked out of the window. Across an angle of the roof, I saw the heads and upper bodies of two people talking in front of the hotel. One was Nile. The other had her back to me, but the curve of her hair and shoulder gave me an idea I could not ignore. I pressed my forehead to the glass, then ran down a flight of stairs and found another window on a landing. Here, I could see that the young woman wasn't Ali, after all. Of course not. She was in profile now, and she was really nothing like my sister. She was a rather unfortunate-looking woman, in fact, who at best resembled Ali got up in a grotesque disguise. Her nose was a lumpy snub, and she squinted through thick spectacles. Her hair was dry and ratty, and she wore canvas overalls that Ali would never have considered. I carried on down to the lobby, intending to catch Nile, but when I reached the front of the hotel, he and the young woman were gone. The only people in sight were a mature couple, his hair silver, hers brass, walking on the seafront in matching vermilion shell suits. They stared at me, astonished, until I went back inside. I found Nile lying on his side in the empty fireplace of the dining room, with one arm up the chimney. His face was smutted with soot. The unfortunate-looking woman was standing over him. She turned away from me, dragging her hair across her face. "'Hello,' I said, noting again how unlike Ali she was. Her hand repeated the fitful movement through her hair, and she hurried past me, almost breaking into a run as she left the room. Niall scowled. "'Was that necessary?' He was trying to sidetrack me again, but I was not going to allow it. We need to leave, I told him. A clot of soot fell into his face. What are you supposed to be anyway, I said. The caretaker? He wiped his face with his free hand, smearing streaks across his forehead. If you like, he said. He gave a cry of triumph and pulled his arm free of the chimney. Here, hold this. The object he passed me was dry. It weighed nothing and smelled of nothing. It was a dead magpie. I swore and dropped it. There's more, I guarantee you, Nile said. He began to thread his arm back up the chimney, then paused and sat up in the hearth. His arm was black to the shoulder. His arm was black to the shoulder. You know, she isn't going anywhere, he said. I was holding my hands away from my body like a scrubbed up surgeon. I told you, I said, he's forcing her. Niall shook his head. He was no longer smiling, but there was a kind of affect He was no longer smiling, but there was a kind of affection in his face. Look, Tobes, I'll say this much. There is no such person as Sol. All at once I pitied him. Something had gone wrong in his life, I realized. There must be a reason he had decided to make a bad joke of himself. I spoke as gently as I could. You're not making sense, I said. 
Why would she tell me those things? Nara was settling back into the fireplace, reaching up the chimney again. Already, the honest look had been replaced by a smirk. I leaned on the promenade railing and watched the water, trying to get the fresh air through my head. The waves were small but violent, the water dark even where it was shallow. The waves had a gel quality in spite of their quickness. Where they ran over rocks, it was hard to see where the water ended and the rocks began. I had spent an hour walking around the side streets, trying to find a tyre pump for the car. Eventually I had remembered my roadside assistance scheme and trailed along the seafront in search of a phone signal. With the sea to my left and the hotel behind me, I walked to where the town began to run out. Or I thought I did, but I must have been distracted, because when I looked up, I found that the hotel was ahead of me again though the sea was still on my left. I tried a payphone outside an ice cream parlour, but the handset was dead. Now it was getting dark. I knew what Niall's smirk was implying. I could unfold his whole fantasy. It was ridiculous to insinuate that Ali would invent the story of Sol, ridiculous that she would pretend to be abandoning her life. It showed a nastiness in Niall that surprised me even now. He wanted me to think the worst of her, and of myself. His lie had tiny hooks to it, but they weren't getting into me. I turned away from the rail and looked up at the seafront gothic. In the failing light, the hotel seemed larger but less substantial. A print on wet sky. Light showed in an attic window. A figure was coming along the promenade. I knew it, well. I knew her proportions, the way she held her head, the way she placed one foot in front of the other, the unstudied pendulum swing that made the simple action of her walking not just fascinating, but nourishing to watch. There was no mistaking her. Not trying to explain it to myself, I hurried forward, and I saw what should have been obvious all along, though it had seemed too irrational to consider. If she looked like Ali in disguise, this was because it was a disguise. I saw the falsity of the teeth, the cheapness of the wig, the joke-shop distortion of the oversized spectacles, the rubbery pallor of the putty on her nose. I didn't care why she had done it. I only wanted to embrace her. When she saw me, she turned back the way she had come. I followed. She picked up her pace and I did the same. I called out her name but she didn't stop. Instead, she ran and I ran after her. Without intending it, I was in full pursuit, hearing her quick breathing and her feet slapping on the paving slabs. I asked her to stop, pleading with her not to be afraid. Another voice was shouting, too, somewhere above me, but now she had come to a place where a flight of steps led down to the strand. She took them dangerously fast, stumbled at the bottom, and kept running toward the sea. The tide was halfway out, and the beach was a treacherous landscape of shingle, mud, rocks draped in seaweed and drifts of plastic. She fell, but picked herself up before I could reach her. I slipped, cracked my knee on a rock, and hauled myself forward without losing pace. A voice called my name. Nile was leaping down the steps. I ignored him and kept going, because her ankle had turned on a rock and she had fallen full length. When I caught up, she was sitting in wet sand. I dropped to my knees beside her and tried to catch my breath. The tide was out, but the waves sounded close. She pushed the hair out of her face. She was not Ali. 
Her features were not a disguise. She was a different person, with even less resemblance to my sister than I had thought to begin with. I mumbled an apology. She was gripping her ankle with both hands. Niall reached us and she let him help her back to the promenade, where, I now saw, other people had lined up along the railing. The woman with the coin necklaces was there, and the boys, and the couple, and others. With the locals helping the young woman to limp away along the promenade, Niall came back. My knee was already too stiff to bend. I let him haul me upright. We walked up the beach and climbed the steps. As we started back towards the hotel, I tried to say something, but I was oddly short of breath. Most of the sea was shadowed, but the horizon was a rod of bright silver. I leaned on Nile, and he held me steady. He touched my shoulder, as if to say that as long as I was here, I need not worry about making myself understood. The Noella Bice podcast is produced in a small back room in the Shimizhini Centre. Still World's Turning is edited by Emma Warnock and is published by Noella Bice Press, with thanks to Ruby Colley for her music.